When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. The Grind. Thanks to Tennis Direct, your number one online tennis store with great prices and fast delivery. Go shopping at TennisDirect.com.au. Use the discount code FIRSTSERVE10. Hello to the First Serve family and welcome back to another edition of The Grind. As always, I'm your host, Alex Johnston, and on this edition, I was fortunate enough to be joined by the Director of Pathways and Game Development at Tennis Australia, Lawrence Robertson. After spending four successful years at the helm of Tennis New South Wales, Lawrence moved on to his current role at Tennis Australia to look after the competitive pathways for tennis in Australia. One of his major responsibilities is looking after the Australian Pro Tour, which encompasses ITF level events as well as ATP Challenger events. In this episode, I sat down to discuss the ins and outs of putting these tournaments together and picked his brain about Tennis Australia's mindset and planning for these events. So in saying that, let's get stuck into the chat. First of all, thanks for joining me, Lawrence. Really appreciate your time. Um, Just to sort of kickstart the conversation a bit, I suppose, start off with, for those who don't know, could you give us a brief overview of your role at TA and how that relates to ITF and Challenger events or Australian Pro Tour events, as you class them. Yeah, sure. And um, Alex, thanks um, for coming in and helping the chance to to chat to the first serve again. Um, so yeah, the director of pathways um, and game development, fundamentally responsible for all aspects of the competitive pathway from junior competition right the way through to um, our calendar of of Pro Tour events in Australia. So any any form of um, competitive tennis um, outside of what we clean. Um, deemed to be our summer of tennis really falls into um, you know, my remit. So as say from Red Bull junior competition uh, right the way through to ATP challenges. Very nice. Um, busy job, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess with all that, what's in store for Aussie tennis fans the rest of 2022, I suppose, from that Australian pro to a point from ITF events all the way up to ATP challenger class events. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we we look to the end of the year as the players come back from uh, the hardcore season in in the US, and um, you know we have a, a pretty busy schedule planned for the remainder of the year. So we've got another eight weeks of pro tour tennis planned. Um, we plan to go to um, the Northern Territories. Um, we'll go to Queensland uh, with Cairns. We'll have <coughs> we'll have ATP challengers. Um, um, scheduled for Playford and SA and Sydney and then um, we've also got two further weeks provisionally booked for um, the middle of November and those those uh, those venues are still to be determined so um, for us um, the, the you know, discussion that we have as an organization um, is really led mostly by our performance team how do we provide the best opportunities to um, to our Australian players for them to fundamentally build their um, their ranking um, and ensure that they're well prepared for the summer of tennis. 
Of course. So I guess with those you mentioned, there's a few up north, Northern Territory, Cairns. Is what sort of consideration goes to whereabouts in Australia that you put these events? Obviously, it's a pretty big country. So do you try and capitalise on the weather up north? Is that a bit part of it? or? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, we, we have to take into account a number of factors. Um, first, of all, first of all, you're right, the weather. It's like, yeah. where, where can we get the best climate in order for us to ensure that when we do stage these events, we can have a, a pretty clear schedule. There's nothing worse than a couple of days of rain and then you're yeah. playing catch up and so on and so forth. So um, a bit like the you know, professional tour, we kind of chase the sun a little bit. So we'll look at the weather. Um, as you understand, Tennis Australia is made up of me- eight member associations. Um, and so we, we look at how we can best support each of our state bodies um, through the delivery of our calendar, whether that be at the professional level or down through you know, what's known as the Australian Money Tournaments. We look at our venues. Um, so many of um, the state and local governments have invested into uh, new facilities. And so we, you know, we look at how we can support uh, places like the likes of Caloundra, where you know, I was in Darwin last week, the, the Darwin International Tennis Centre. Um, and then we also just look at genuine player flow, right? where, where are the players moving to and from um, and where can we effectively stage an event um, you know, with you know, good operational support, proximity to airports, accommodation. So there's a number of factors that we take into account when we look to build the calendar um, and, um, and, and then you know, across the board ourselves, our colleagues in performance, we, we go ahead and, and lock things in and take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I guess another little small side question to that is the timing of the year with things. We kind of start of the year we're on, then sort of later in the year. Is there any consideration during winter, I suppose, to put a few more up north maybe if weather is the issue? Well, look, we, uh, there's, these, these events cost money. Um, and so you know, the, the challenge for any tennis federation is, you know, at the end of the day, there's only so many dollars to spend and you, you have to work out where do we get the best return. Um, the reality is, is when we look at our, um, the majority of our professional, so majority, but let's say the players who are performing at the very top end of the professional game or, or for whom these events are, are really aimed at, um, the, the large majority of them will be in Europe or in the US from, say, late March or April, right the way through to September. Yeah, very true. So, um, and, and that is really driven by, um, you know, the calendar. So they go into the US, they go into the hard courts, you know, they're, they're trying to qualify either for the likes of Miami or Indian Wells, and then we're on the clay, then we're on the grass, we're back onto the hard courts in the US. So for six months of the year, majority of our professional cohort are overseas. Um, and, and even then, the quality of competition in Europe, even at Challenger and, and, um, and at uh, ITF level, is so strong yeah, very that hard. the decision that the group take here is it's probably better for them to compete in Europe yeah. um, because there's a lot of choice, there's a lot of competition. And so then we look at our calendar and think, well, from September through to March, how do we provide the best opportunities? So our focus is really six months of the year when we know that it's more likely our professional cohort is going to be back in Australia. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. So just moving on, for those who may not know, what is the process behind securing ITF events and ATP Challenger tournaments? Um, I'm sure it's pretty tricky dealing with all the different organisations. 
Yeah, look, it is and it is and it isn't. I yeah. mean, we, uh, you know, we're obviously a very well-established federation. We're lucky that we're a Grand Slam nation. We, we have a good working relationship with the ATP, with the WTA, with the ITF. Um, and ultimately for them, you know, they're looking for um, a number of playing opportunities for that um, job, jobs, as they call it, for the players ranked really from 200 down to 1,000 in the world, because the, the WTA and ATP will cater for the top 200. And then the ITF looks to cater for everything below that or the Challenger Tour. Um, and so for us, we've got some established dates in the calendar that the ATP usually come to us and say, are you ready to roll again? And obviously COVID impact a lot of, a lot of that. But, um, you know, if we were looking to go, if we were looking to put a new event into a new week, for example, we'd probably have to have a conversation with, with either of the bodies and determine what else is on. And if it's, let's say, if there's events in the Middle East that week, but we would be the only or one of two of uh, an offering in Asia Pacific, Generally, they're pretty favourable. But if there's seven or eight events in Japan or Southeast Asia, then the conversation's a little bit more challenging because they'll say, well, look, there's a lot of choice and we don't want to split the playing field too much. Yeah. Um, so they, they, I don't think they're too difficult. I think they really welcome us offering jobs, as they like to call it. Um, it's really just more about does the calendar make sense? So it's yeah. all about player flow. You know? So again, where are the players going? Where are they coming from? Um, and does us staging an event in Darwin make sense in the broader scheme of things? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I guess we're also a bit, um, I guess with where Australia is located as well, it does make it difficult for logistically, I suppose, for everyone to kind of get down here. Yeah, look, it, it, it kind of does in a way. And so for a lot of the players, um, you know, a lot of them like to come down. And if they're going to come down here, they like to spend a fair amount of time here. And so, again, that's when we think about the calendar build. We'll look at staging weeks on, we'll go back to back. Yeah. Um, again, it just even for our Australian players, you know, we're going to we're going to go to Darwin for two weeks. We we're in Caloundra recently for two weeks. It just makes sense for them to go somewhere, set up shop, find somewhere to stay. They know they're there for two weeks rather than we're going to play here for a week, then get on another flight. Yeah. And we just know at the moment, you know, air travel's challenging and it's costly yeah. and so on and so. So you're just trying to you're trying to build a calendar that makes sense. For the players, you want to try and minimise their costs as well as um, maximise their ability to, to gain ranking points. So the, it's a sort of, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, but I think um, you know, we do a pretty decent job at it. Yeah, no, certainly not a perfect science at all, it seems like. Um, so obviously in the last edition of this podcast, I spoke to Richard Glover, who heads up the Challenger Tour for the ATP. You kind of mentioned it a little bit there. He He said, I asked him, you know, what's the process behind nations securing Challenger events? And he sort of, not to mince his words, essentially it went, they went to the highest bidder at the moment or whoever wanted them, but that's something he wants to change and put a bit more structure to. So it seems, my take was it seems some nations are just hesitant to host them for whatever reason that might be. Yeah. Um, what's the sentiment with TA regarding them? Because as I mentioned before, we only got four challenger-listed events here, two at the start of the year, two at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, is it more of a case of lingering COVID-19 issues and money flow that why we're not hosting more or? Well, look, as I say, the, the, we, we, we sort of view our pro calendar as a combination of both what we deem to be ATP challengers, which is sort of 80,000 US dollars and up yeah. and, and the ITF calendar as well. So 15s, 25s, and then on the women's side up to 60 as well. So, 
you know, we, we'll have a, this year, this calendar year, we'll have 32 events, pro tour events. Now, admittedly, four of those are, are challengers. And that, that investment, um, if we move into next year, that's going to be about $5 million investment in the delivery of those events. And it'll offer about $1.8 million of prize money. Um, and so, you know, when we look at can we stage, you know, more than four, we also have to think about what's the right thing for the Australian players, what's the best, the best outcome. So we look at the challengers as when the playing group come through and the lead into the AO, that's the right time to stage that level event. And the ATP are very supportive of that. And then as we get towards the end of the year, we're also thinking about what's the what's the best opportunity for us to maximize a points return for the Australian group of players as well. Um, so it, it, it is the hard economics of it. The fact is, in countries such as, say, France, Italy, and even the US, who host considerably more challengers, the tennis community really view those as commercial entities. So the country club network in the US, the local community will really grasp it. They'll, they'll, they'll raise local sponsorship. They'll drive really hard. Um, a commercial return from whatever the councils and so on and so forth. Yeah. Our tennis community doesn't necessarily have the same, you know, we, these, these, these events will cost in excess of 400, 500,000 Aussie dollars to stage once you factor in, you know, the prize money, accommodation, transport, ball kids, officials. So to ask, a, let's say, a Caloundra to raise half a million dollars, that's a big ask, right? Yeah. Whereas you go to the you go to the country club circuit in the US or you go to you know, some of the venues in Italy and France, they're very happy to take that on. So sometimes it's not the federation that are footing the bill. Right. It'll be a it'll be a club or a commercial venue a venue that's footing the bill. And so that's where you'll see the US and Italy or France with a higher number of challenger events because the private sector has stepped in and said, we'll run this. We haven't been able to get to that point in Australia, but like they, they view us as the government, and quite rightly. Yeah. And so we, you know, we we don't have commercial venues coming to us and say we're happy to foot you know half a million dollar bill to run a an ATP. We'd love it if they would. Yeah. But we just don't think there is the capacity. If anybody out there wants to come and have a conversation, <laughs> feel free. We'd love to have that. But you know, many of our Bernie. Mildura, you know, some of these, Caloundra, some of those smaller venues love being part of the Pro Tour circuit. Yeah. But they would they would never see it upon them to, to cover all of the operating costs, right? They always expect, and quite rarely they expect us as the governing body to really fundamentally underwrite these things. So you're just going to be mindful. It's, a, it's in different countries, there's a slightly different model. Yeah, of course. Now that... Very good answer. Pretty much answered my next question. I was going to ask um, how much of the bidding process is determined by external um, financial resources. So in saying that, do we get any sort of help outside of Tennis Australia for these events? Um, in terms of staging these these events, I mean, the we, we have some commercial assets. Um, so some of our some of our state bodies um, some of the state governments, some of the local governments will um, provide you know, funding support because it's obviously a benefit to the local economy. Yeah. So we'll, we'll receive some um, you know, like local government or tourism funding to help bring events to their region because we know they deliver you know, a good level of economic return. We're bringing you know, a staff, officials, players, players, coaches, physios, 
So, you know, for as a, as a sort of tourism product, um, it kind of works quite nicely. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, particularly in those quieter seasons, it, it, it fills a number of bed nights. And so we'll get some funding from tourism bodies, local government. Um, and we also, we, we sell some of our, you know, streaming rights. And so we do get um, some additional funding from the ITF and the ATP for, you know, global betting rights or streaming rights. So there's, there's some revenue that does come through. We don't have a title sponsor for the Australian Pro Tour. We'd love to have one. You know, we don't have a, you know, we don't have a Nestle domestic broadcast um, product. And again, the problem or the challenge there, you know, is Alex that people say, well, why can't you get it on something like a KO or a stand because they're streaming, you know, provincial rugby or you're going to have broadcast costs. And so you've got to weigh up, you know, what's the cost to put cameras there and crews there? And are we going to get the return? And is it delivering commercial return rather than, um, you know, uh, commercial return, both in terms of finance and the eyeballs? And today we don't think it necessarily would do. But again, you know, mm. we're currently exploring how we can make the Pro Tour a more commercially viable product. Yeah, that's sort of the big question with those lower tier events, I suppose. And a few of the people I've spoken to first episode, Mike Cation, who commentates some um, the American Pro Tour over there. Yeah. And our big thing was, you know, how, how do you market this better? Because you do see some really great tennis and some interesting people with interesting stories. But how do you get the casual fan to not watch Djokovic v Nadal and go watch, you know, a challenger event so yeah the marketing side of things is always difficult i suppose with regards to these events well look it's um uh, you know I, I think we were very fortunate that um if for many for many um australians tennis is the ao yeah um and the summer of tennis and so we're kind of spoiled because the world's best spend a month with us and mm. so they can see novak They've seen Roger, they see Rafa, they've seen Serena, um, Simona. They get to see the world's best, and and so you're right. There is a there is certainly a job for us to do in um, you know helping educate that the, there is some really great tennis at this level, mm. um, and how might we do this? And obviously there are streaming services out there, um, but again, the the I think this is about probably some of the culture and heritage around the challenger tour so as you say in the u.s local communities really embrace challenge you know the country club scene really embrace it and so they become many effectively atp events for us so we've got sydney we've got brisbane we've got hobart that's their moment to shine and so they really yeah. go you know they really go hard at it and so you will see small levels of you'll see small crowds you'll see you know some level of corporate sponsorship hospitality they really build it up um so yeah i think there's certainly there's an onus on us to see if we can do that job better in some of the local communities that we we go to but at the same time you know the australian community are going to want to have to see dane sweeney or dane kelly or tristan Schoolkate. and so far many of them would say that level of tennis is not necessarily attractive to us. We want to watch the best and we'll wait for you know, January to come out so we can see the world's best. I think. So we're kind of, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a swings and roundabout. We've always yeah. got too much good tennis where when it comes to this level and these, these players are very, very good at what they do. Um, and then you know, sometimes the public, we probably need to do a better job of educating them. And I know yourself and, and Brett, you know, provide a, 
a great platform to shine a light on some of the talent we've got at this level. So I think it's a fair question, but our public also are not necessarily inclined. There's just so much professional sport on offering. Yeah, right? yeah, no, that's um, especially down here in Melbourne, contesting with everything else is always difficult. And you're right, when everyone can um, come here January, sort of fill their boots for the year with some great tennis yeah and even the lead up to that with the atp cup and then into those other atp wta events we have as well so yeah i do understand the challenge and you're right you know who's gonna wander out to court 15 and watch these itf events for example or when yeah. you can watch that but yeah it's all about i guess education and seeing some of the which we do a bit here at the first serve um giving them a bit of a wrap but yeah, the, the conversation is what's that cutoff level from, you know, being really good tennis, say, from an ATP level? Is it, you know, two, three hundred? Is that the cutoff before it starts to taper down a bit? So, you well, do. Some, some of the things that I mean, I, I, I get regularly asked, you know, you know, when you're out meeting friends or you're being interested to people, people ask people what I do and, and explain, you know, the role that I'm in. Um, you know, some of our players you know, are, you know, somewhere between 200 and 400 in the world. And the, the mindset for some people would be, oh, well, you know, that doesn't seem very, very good. If you were to look at, uh, if you look at the English Premier League or La Liga, and there's 20 teams, and each of them have a squad of 20-odd players, right? Yeah. So there's, four, there's 400 players that play in the English Premier League. I would imagine that the 200, the 250th best player in the Premier League would be incredibly well-known oh, yeah. and would probably be an international footballer. And so most people would say, geez, they're very good and they're getting paid a lot of money. So when you try and put it in perspective, the likes of Alex Ball, you know, these guys who all have, you know, worked incredibly hard in their careers, Jordan Thompson, you know, a really solid top 100 player. You put Jordy in a, in a football equation, Jordy would be playing for one of the top, he'd be playing for a Champions League team. Yeah. So he's immensely talented, but trying to educate the wider tennis community or the sports loving community as to how good these people are. We appreciate that's a job for us to do, but getting them to sort of lean into, you know, a challenger in Darwin and say, this is a big event and there's some really good people playing here. When we've sort of told them that it's the AO and the ATP cup and the other things that matter because it's on channel nine, that's a difficult mindset to shift. Yeah. It's like the VFL, right? I've, I've, been, I've been fortunate enough to go down to, I just moved to Bayside. So I went to see Sandrine and Zebras. That's a good level of football. And they're only just one below playing at the AFL. Two and a half thousand people there, right? So these people are, these, these guys are really good, but you know they don't get the coverage, they don't get the exposure that they do at the AFL level. So we're in a sort of similar scenario, right? So um, I'd love to be able to find a way to put these levels of events on a slightly higher pedestal for sure. Yeah, no, it's a good comparison. And yeah, it's, not an easy task, I'm sure. So <laughs> don't envy you at all. Nothing's ever easy, right? In tennis. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, so I guess kind of a small one to that exposure. Has there been any thought of putting either challenges or I'll just class them Australian Pro Tour events? Yeah. Kind of aligned at the same time as some of these ATP WTA events we have earlier in the year. Like I noticed uh second week of Indian Wells, I think there was a challenger in Phoenix that attracted like a, re a really good field because it was a stone's throw away from where Indian well was. And while, I guess, while everyone's in town, do you capitalize and put an event on for the lower level players that might get bundled out in qualifying at an AO or. Absolutely. Um, and we do that and we have been doing that for the past you know decade. So as the players come through into, into Australia, 
obviously many of them are getting ready for qualifying. So if they haven't made the main draw, they'll, they'll be looking at qualifying. So that's the week before. Um, but historically, we will we'll always stage a, an ATP Challenger um, and a WTA or an ITF World Tennis Tour event in week one. Um, and then in week two, we'll either have a men's, men's event um, or women's event as well. So we take the same view. We've always staged um, our probably highest level of, of Pro Tour events in those two weeks leading into, into the AO. We've historically also had the debate about do we do we continue on the lead out? Um, this year we, we had um, six weeks of Pro Tennis um, in the eight weeks immediately following the AO and um, we were in um, Canberra, remember, right? we went to Canberra straight out the back of the AO. We, we then came back to Victoria and then went back to Canberra again on the clay. So for us, that's the opportunity to um, give our players as strong as competition as possible. So it might not maximise the points return for the Australians, but what it is is we're giving them a good understanding of what the level is because they're, they're getting a chance to have a good look at the world's best, whether it be at the Pro Tour level or, or at the ATP and WC level. So we we follow exactly the same model that the other slams do. We will generally provide um, some form of Pro Tour event um, of some level leading into, into the slam. Yeah, no, it's... Um... It's a really good process to go through. I think the for a developmental stage alone, I guess, really helpful. And that was sort of another the next topic I was going to touch on. You see the rise of Italian tennis at the moment. Yeah, there's a few more South Americans coming through at the moment, and I guess the correlation I've noticed there over the past few years is just the sheer weight of how many tournaments there are in Italy. There's a lot more challenger events specifically in South America now. Is that something TA sort of considers when bidding or not bidding for events? Um, the developmental sort of impact it can have. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, fun enough, we're doing this exercise anyway, and so I've just been looking at the number of players in the top 200, um, you know, and so the USA are on top of that table. They've got 20 men, 20 women at the moment, and Italy have, it's second in that table in terms of the, in fact, sorry, France is second in that table with 30, 18 men, 12 women. Italy've got 19 men and, and seven women in the um uh, in the top 200 and the correlation if you go through the US Italy and France is they've got you know collectively they've got the highest number of um, you know, challenger events in comparison to the likes of Spain ourselves Czech Republic and the UK so they they are certainly investing heavily in that space um, obviously you've got to look at population you know they're considerably bigger than we are in terms of sheer population and at the same time um, they they have a, a tennis calendar that can exist for 12 months of the year um, you know even if some of their players choose to go to the US it's only a five five and a half hour flight back for our players when they go to Europe they're kind of gone and yeah. so when we talked about that six month window um, we're not going to, there's no way we are bringing the rest of the tennis world to Australia during the Northern Europe or Northern American summer. They're just not going to, they're not going to come down here. It's yeah, too far, true. it's too expensive. So the likes of France, Italy and Spain, the economics and the sheer volume of players in those countries allow that to stack up in terms of and their ability to provide great fields. So they've, well, they've obviously taken a view of how do we 
heavily invest in the challenger space and then provide our playing group the greatest opportunity to, to build their ranking. So we do look enviously at that, that we try and punch above our weight. And so, you know, per population, you know, we're pretty comparable to the likes of Spain, the UK, Czech Republic, and even to some extent, you know, Italy. Um, you know, per million, they've got 0.75 Pro Tour events per population. We are 0.77. So we're, we're pretty comparable. But you've just got to bear in mind that they go for 12 months of the year. Yeah. And there's you know three times the number of people in Italy. Plus, they've got all of Europe as well to attract players into. Right? On their so the minute yeah. they put a challenger event on, you're going to get a lot of players. The commercial model there is different as well. So it, it's just a it's a, just a slightly different model for them. Yeah. Um, but of course, we look at what they're all doing and we think, how do we get the best return for us for what we've got to invest and also how the tennis calendar works. Yeah, no, I, I do think we do a brilliant job with given where we are located geographically and the fact that people do have to go over and, you know, spend more four or five months on the road a year to sort of make it work. Um, especially at the moment, we've got so many men in the top 150, 200 at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we do, you know, we do punch pretty well for, for the size of the country that we are. And look, just, you know, even thinking about that European swing, the likes of, you know, Alex, you know, obviously moved to Spain and, and, and Demon benefited from the fact that there is a really strong challenger circuit in Europe. Alexi did exactly the same. You know, they, they both really, their, their developmental journey was, was sort of ground out on the, the course of, you know, of Europe. And I understand a lot of people saying, well, why can't we offer that here in Australia? But in many ways, um, I'm not sure we'd provide, we could certainly consider putting on the tournaments. I'm just not sure that those players would get the level of competition that's going to benefit them in terms of their player development. And our, and our performance team would share that mindset, which is that they need to go where they're going to get pushed and pushed hard. And the reality is that that, that means more, more than likely the European circuit or the North American circuit. We just don't, we're not going to, we're not going to bring the tennis world down to us. We unfortunately have to go to them. So when they do come, we try and do the best. And at the end of the year, we try and give our players the very best opportunity. But when the rest of the world are competing in Northern Europe and Northern Northern America, our players go there. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I know sort of golf in Australia sort of struggles with the same thing. It's do you stay here on this tour or do you go to Europe and America where you're going to get the better competition so better competition, better prize money offerings, all that yep. sort of stuff. You know, it's a, it, it, again, it goes back to those weighing all the factors up and think what's the best of return, whether it be yep. financial or the reality is what's the best return from a points perspective. So we are going to find the highest ranked event, an 80 or a 100 or 125 challenger um, and, you know, fly there, stay there and then get the best return from a points perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess a last sort of point to touch on is the main sort of issue that players seem to have is the financial burden of traveling year round and stuff like that. It, is that something they come back to Tennis Australia with and say, how can this be alleviated, I suppose? Or is it just a fact of having more tournaments down here and give them sort of run at home without spending too much money on travel, I guess? Yeah, look, um, we're, you know, so we're acutely aware of, 
um, the financial demands that the circuit places on um, players and um, and so you know, when we when we look at how we construct a calendar as I was saying earlier minimizing city hopping so we're not asking them to go you know Townsville, Mackay, Cairns, Brisbane you know we try and provide blocks of, of play um, and so you probably see these you know our pro tour blocks being two or potentially three weeks back to back so we've and, and at the same time, how do we provide other prize money opportunities that are perhaps not necessarily within the ITF or ATP and WTA rankings environment? So this year we've staged seven um, Universal Tennis Pro Tennis Tour events. They offer twenty thousand US dollars of, of prize money, so they're they're prize money opportunities. And then we 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 do have a pretty solid calendar of Australian um, money tournaments as well. So you know those. Seven and a half and fifteen thousand dollar events that that we, we we put on across the course of the year as well. So I think we looked at it. I think across this year, this calendar year, we will have I think around about I think it was forty two weeks of tennis where you can earn some money. Yeah. So yeah, that's a it's a pretty crammed schedule, um, but for a lot of our players, you know, when they're down in the 500s, down to the thousands in the, in the rankings, they're making the same decisions as everybody else. Where can I fly to? How much? How cheaply can I stay there? Yeah. And what's going to be the return in terms of prize money? And they kind of think if I make quarters or make semis, and they're just weighing those decisions up all the time. Um, and obviously, we have a national um, tennis academy program, and so we have a select number of athletes whom you know we do support. Um, well, well, you know through. You know, both strength and conditioning and coaching support as well. So we're, we're trying to do everything we can to make their journey um, as easy as it, as it possibly can be from a financial perspective, but also from a, a, a playing perspective as well. Yeah, no, um, as I've probably said a few times, it definitely wouldn't be easy and looks from the outset that you do a pretty good job of it all. So, Like I say, I, I, I think given our location and, and how remote we are in terms of the rest of the tennis world, um, I think we provide a, a pretty solid calendar. Um, and, um, you know, COVID certainly threw um, a real challenge at us. We managed to um, stand up a number of um, UTR events during that period of time. So we, we provided prize money for many of our, our Australians during that period of time. So we still managed to provide playing and prize money opportunities but now that the that the tour has opened up again and we've got atp and itf and wta ranking points available um, the big focus for us is how do we how do we how do we maximize the opportunity for the australian playing community so i think we're doing a pretty good job yeah i think so too so i'll, I'll just finish with one last one is there any sort of player you can identify that might make the jump up next as a young australian so at the first serve, we're liking the look of Rinky at the moment over doing some stuff in the US. Is there one you've sort of picked out? Yeah, I mean, Rinky's been sort of on the radar now for, for a while. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, he certainly demonstrated that he's got um, he's got the ability to, um, you know, to, to, to sort of you know, make that next step and really start to push into the, uh, you know, into the, into the tour. Um, you know, Talia um, Gibson's doing you know, a great job of it at the moment as well. She's progressing nicely. She's, you know, she's winning some matches on the, in the ITF circuit as well. So, look, I think we've got, you know, we've got a good solid bunch of, 
um, certainly young kids um, who are, you know, who are sort of coming through. Charlie Camus in, in the ACT, still young, but I think yeah. is, is trending nicely. He's performing well at, at the ITF levels. And so for a lot of us, it's a lot of the focus is in that area where you've got some of our juniors now progressing into those lower level ITFs. Yeah. And you think, you know, how do we get, give them the right opportunity to progress through the ITFs and then find that opportunity to take them you know, into Europe or into the US over the next two to three years and give them the, um, the opportunity to perform in those levels. So there's a real bunch of them that we think have got um, a real opportunity. Yeah, no, it's um, exciting times for Australian tennis at the moment. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining me. That was um, pretty insightful. I'm sure our listeners will get a fair bit out of it. Thanks, Alice. Always a pleasure. Well, that was a really insightful discussion with Lawrence, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it and learned something about the whole process behind the planning for ITF and Challenger events in Australia. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you again for the next edition of The Grind. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.